Well, today um, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. And we just finished one of the two prayers in the book of Ephesians. The first prayer um, was just a powerful example of how to pray in a mature way. But it's interesting in that prayer, Paul kept saying, Lord, give us the power, and he was very specific, the power of resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be in us. And so now we're, we're beginning to look at the implications of this power of the resurrection. And we see in chapter 2, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I will make note that most of your Bibles, if you notice, he made alive is in italics. That's added because of the context infers it. But nevertheless, the meaning of it in the original language is there. We were dead. Now, we are body. We are soul. The soul is our will. So look at my body. It's going to be gone someday. Picture my soul, if you would, sort of like a, a invisible ghost, if you would, however you want, under my skin. Make it the same shape of my body, if that helps. Now, in us, in our soul, is a spirit. And that spirit in our soul lives for eternity. And the spirit, it's in us to communicate with God, to have fellowship with God. Now, we often feel things on a, soul, on a soulish level. Unfortunately, many churches today are ministering to their flock on soulish level rather than a spiritual level. So if I'm driving along and I, I turn on the country and western song and I, I hear some guy talking uh, about how he, he lost his truck and his dog died and he's, and he's talking about how tragic it was that his dog that had been his friend since a boy died and I had lost my dog. I'm weeping and I'm just, oh, my soul, oh, it's comforting, it's healing, it hurts and it's blessed. And now I love that guy. I don't know who he is, but he's my favorite singer because he touched my soul. And souls can sense souls. Sometimes people think that's a spiritual aspect. And, and so often Eastern religions are messed up thinking they're being spiritual when really it's just soulish. So you can smile and say, oh, I'm doing great, but yet I sense sorrow about you. I sense anger or frustration. I'm looking at your face, I'm hearing your words, but my soul is picking up on your soul. And I can sense that there's something else going on. And often people have that ability some are more sensitive to the souls of other people. But that's not spirit, okay? And I understand it may look like it and feel like it, and if that's all you know, it is it, but it's not. Our spirit in us is to commune with God. And as soulish and helpful as man is sometimes, 
A psychologist can just sit and listen to you for an hour and ask a few questions and open you up a little bit more and you, you leave feeling somewhat better because men can help men's souls. But yet, when we're alone, all the voices are quieted. God's spirit is in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And they sense that there is still something missing. There's something that's not right in me and in the universe. And that is because man was made to have fellowship with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the spirit died. It became dead. The Lord warned Adam and Eve of that. They said, in the day you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now, in their minds, they're thinking they would fall dead like a an apple and they, their body becomes fertilizer for that tree. But when she didn't die, Adam also took and ate and they were still very much alive. However, their eyes were open for the first time, like a little child's eyes are open to the flesh. And they lied to God. They tried to be deceptive to God when he came and talked to them once again in the garden. And they realized their flesh and how naked their flesh was. And so Adam and Eve's kids and their kids after them, and their kids after them, are born into this world with a body and a soul, but a spirit that is not in communion with God. The Bible would describe that as dead. And so man is seeking spiritual answers. The Bible says the natural mind can't understand it because the deadness is really dead. <laughs> And Satan, we're going to discover, loves to take advantage of spiritually dead people. He really likes to puppet them because he can so manipulate them as they're seeking out spirituality. It often ends up in some kind of dead religion. Or it ends up in some kind of spiritualism. Or it gets them focused on themselves and, and their power and, and their goodness. And they are very much still dead, even though they feel spiritual. I think one commentator, Wood, says it this way. The most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor of life, God. Spurgeon said it this way. Not in a moral sense, not in a mental sense, but in a spiritual sense. Poor humanity is dead. So the word of God again and again most positively describes it. Now, what degree is the deadness? The Calvinist got this very much wrong. They have one of their five principles. They call them TULIP. Those are the acronym. And one of them is depravity. And they teach that man is dead like a body in a morgue. 
And so when you're preaching to that dead guy in the morgue, that's exactly what it's like talking to people who have not yet been born again. I disagree with that. Because when you think about it, you say, well, that dead man can't hear things. Well, he can't sin either. So is he righteous? Does the guy in the morgue, is he a righteous guy because he doesn't sin? No. I think the deadness the Bible's talking here about is more like the prodigal son. Remembering in Luke 15, 24, he says the son that returned, he said for this, my son was dead, but now is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to make merry. So the deadness is not the deadness like the Calvinists speak. Because the Calvinists believe this, that man is so dead that the Holy Spirit actually has to pick him out and then his Holy Spirit has to basically make him born again before he can hear God's voice and repent of his sins and come to Christ. The Holy Spirit first has to regenerate a man. Now, we'd very much disagree with that. God made us in his image, and we sense that we are erring from that image, even, in, even being spiritually dead, because God made it so. He also gave us a conscience. He gave us a sense of right and wrong. Wherever you go in the world, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, stealing is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a little tiny tribe of 50 in the Amazon rainforest, you know those things are wrong, or whether you're in the opposite side of the planet in some industrial or some uh, great technologically advanced city, you still know it's wrong. This is how God made it so we would sense our wrongness, our sinfulness, and realize that our sinfulness is obvious. It's not about some little secret things that somebody, no, it's blatant. I, it's not like I lust, I, I'm adulterer in heart. It's not like I'm angry at somebody. I hate them. I would, I would, if I had a gun, I would have shot them. We're greedy. We're bitter. We know that we are of all sinned with a big, giant capital S. But nevertheless, God can, with the Holy Spirit, convict our conscience, convince our soul of sin and of righteousness and the judgment to come. David Guzik says it this way, a little bit of long quote, but hang in there with me. This touches on one of the most controversial areas in theology. In what manner and to what extent is a person dead before conversion? Must a person be converted before he can believe? That's what the Calvinists teach. Or can there be a prior work of God to instill faith that is still short of conversion? Those who argue that a man must be regenerated before he can believe like to say that a dead man cannot believe. This takes the particular description further than intended. To say that unredeemed man is exactly like a dead man because a dead man also cannot sin. Well, this isn't the only way a sinner before he comes to Christ is described. I won't label the passages, they're in your notes, but we are also called a child of wrath, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner. We're sick, lost, a lover of darkness, a slave to sin, blind, under the power of darkness. I, I'd say that's all very accurate descriptions of a person before they become born again. Not that the struggle of all those things doesn't continue while we're in this human flesh. 
So in conclusion on this, the theological understanding of deadness, and again, I want to quote Dave Guzik, there in some ways the ungenerated man is dead, in other ways he is not. Therefore, it is valid to appeal to all men to believe. We need not look for evidence of regeneration first, before we tell men to believe to be saved. As the Puritan John Trapp wrote, How bite the natural man, though he be theologically dead, yet is ethically, or still ethically, alive. So we were dead in what? Trespasses and sins. Trespass is you know what is right, you know what is wrong, you're thinking about it. I, I remember my very first trespass. I was in fifth grade. I totally forgot to study for the spelling test. And there I had to think quick during recess because I was dyslexic and it was really hard to do well on spelling tests. And I decided to break my pencil. I had several pencils. And then I would open my desk to get a new pencil and look at the word and then write it down. Well, you could imagine it wasn't very slick since there was like 20 words opening your desk 20 times during a test. Well, I got busted. I didn't feel so bad about cheating. I felt really bad about getting caught. But I, I knew that I had done wrong. But it was contemplated. It was a big, giant black line. There was no gray area. And I stepped over it. That's a trespass. And sins, often called iniquity, it's in the moment. I'm doing great. And all of a sudden, somebody cuts me off. And I'm ah, screaming and yelling and flipping them off. And, ah. and you're like, what's the big deal? I don't know. I can't stop this, though, my rage. It's a moment outburst. Or, or you didn't plan on whatever that sin might be. You were sort of caught by surprise and the weakness of your flesh and the opportune moment caused you to clearly do wrong. I like the way Stott says it. Trespass speaks of a man as the rebel. Sin speaks of the man in his failure. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. Well, verse 2, he goes on to say, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So we're in this world, and Satan orchestrates all of us to live in the deepest, darkest way we can for his purposes. And we are in the course of this world, or the spirit of this age, Peter calls it. We've inherited this sinful nature through Adam, and now this old sinful man of ours is influenced by Satan. In the New Testament, we call it the flesh. I'm in the flesh. <laughs> I, in essence, I'm walking according to a world system, a world way that Satan likes because it puts me in a deeper bondage and he has even a deeper control. He's called here the prince of the power of the air. Yes, he was one of the top angels, if not the top angel, along with Gabriel and Michael, the Bible tells us. 
Now, his rank and his abilities to move about and to have power have not yet been taken away. There is a day God's going to do that, but just not yet. I do a teaching, and you could go to my website, briannewberry.org or Words of Encouragement, and I do a teaching in the book of Genesis on this. The number one most asked question, why does God allow evil? Why does God allow suffering to keep going on? And I do a whole teaching on that. But the bottom line is God can't stand it, and he is going to end it, but he doesn't want to end it until as many people will come to Christ, will come to Christ. And he is a prince. We see in the book of Job, it says, in the day when the Lord called all of these top-ranking angels to come and, and have a board meeting, that somehow Satan himself was still allowed to attend that board meeting. That blows my mind. I never would have considered such a thing. And then Job, it says that Satan started in on his tirade against Job. Oh, Job is so righteous because you, you bless him. Let me have Adam. He'll curse you. And the Lord allows him to have access to Job that he didn't have before because he was a believer in the Lord. He was protected. F.F. Bruce says this, The domain of the air, in fact, is another way of indicating the heavenly realm, which, according to Ephesians 6.12, is the abode of principalities, powers, rulers of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness against the people of Christ, and he's waged war Trapp says it this way, Satan is not the ultimate ruler, but he is a prince in the sense that evil men set him up for their sovereign and holy at his beck and obedience. And it's this spirit of the devil that we sense operating in the world. Interesting, the word works here is the Greek word in We get our word energy from it. And it's the same word we're going to see later in chapter 3, verse 20, where the Lord says, Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So the unbeliever has the devil giving him energy and power. And so the person who is sinning feels empowered by their sin. Afterwards, they may sense the weakness of the destructive element, but in the moment, they're powered by their flesh and to do the sinful works of their flesh as a believer is empowered when they pray and submit themselves to God. So I just want to answer a question. People keep asking me this. As we see now in our country, and it's really not our country, it's the whole world, two completely opposite ideas on how the world should be. And the one looks at the other and says, you're insane. The Democrats look at the Republicans and say, you're insane. And, and, and we, you're so insane, we have no problem making what you're thinking illegal and lock you up for what you're thinking and saying. And the Republicans are looking at the Democrats saying, you're insane. You want to give billions of dollars to abort babies in other countries? Why, we're in the middle of probably the worst depression we've ever 
had. You don't even see it coming. It's coming in a few months. They want people who are transgendered to be able to join the military and then the government pay for their sex operation. This is what they're doing now. It was signed. Signed, sealed, and delivered. We want to open our borders and as many people want to come here and live legally can. Well, that'll be about 7 billion people. But probably after the first 5 billion people get here, the other two won't want to come. It's, it's insanity. And you say, how can things be so insane? Well, this is what the Bible said. When we come to the last days of the last days, there's going to be a clear split in the kingdom. The Bible says these are going to be perilous, dangerous times to live in. But yet it is also God's will that we as believers would shine brighter than we ever shined. It prophesies in Joel that the day of Pentecost was a day they were empowered and then went out and preached the gospel to the whole world through that power. He says there's going to be a latter rain where the people that are believers in the last days before the Antichrist is finally put in power, before the world system does collapse under his sway, that we will be empowered in a greater way than the world has ever seen. And it's scary in a lot of people that God has been calling into salvation or maybe backslidden Christians to, to say, wow, I can't just live in the gray area anymore. There is, the gray area is disappearing. It's no longer there. There had never has been a gray area. It's just simply, you've been asleep to the reality how drastic things are. And so we are seeing the world system, not just in America, but the whole world craving for one single leader. And that leader to speak peace to the whole world. It's a lying peace. He'll tell you a plan for peace. It's a complete lie. And he will insist on a one world economic system, which is already happening. A one world military system. And then eventually a perverted Jewish Christian. I don't know. He's going to mingle many religions together and make a one world religion where ultimately he will set himself in the Holy of Holies in a new built temple in the middle of the tribulation period. So quit wondering, am I insane or are they insane? It's just Satan is a prince of the power of the air. These people, they are empowered with Satan equal to the way you are empowered with God. And the Bible tells us that that satanic system is going to ultimately win. And it's going to be that system, that theology, that methodology, that governmental mindset that the whole world will willingly, joyfully embrace. And say, hey, if you need us all to submit to you as God, We'll do it so the whole world can be at peace. And those who are unwilling to do that won't take the mark of the beast, 666. But then we'll have to hide. And, and I believe the rapture of the church will happen before that comes about. But there are going to be 
Many people that are left behind, once the rapture happens, millions, hopefully billions of people around the planet will disappear in a moment. Doctors in the middle of the operation, pilots in the middle of their flights, captains of ships in the middle of the canals. When everybody disappears, they're going to know, oh, I know it was real. I just couldn't surrender my life to Christ because I was still so enamored with living a life after the flesh. And they're immediately going to know that they have a stint of seven-year tribulation period to get through without bowing their knee. And so... He's not the ultimate ruler, but he is a ruler, and he is, according to the scripture, eventually going to take power. And that man, once he gets in that placement, just like Judas, Satan entered Judas, Satan will enter this Antichrist, and it will be Satan himself (coughs) puppeting that man and giving him great power and signs and wonders. Well, going to verse 3 now. Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and why by nature children of wrath, just as others. So we once lived this way as sons of disobedience in this conduct of life, living by the lust of our flesh. And now as Christians, Romans 8 says we don't live in the flesh, but yet we still wrestle with the flesh. And sometimes we struggle with the flesh so much we wonder if we ever did get saved. We wonder if, if Jesus really is in my life. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am. This body is strong stuff, isn't it? This flesh, and there's no other way other than day by day, crucif- taking up the cross to follow Jesus, day by day, crucifying his flesh with its, all his passions and desires, day by day, hiding God's word in your heart that you won't sin against him. There is no other way. Well, give me a six-month plan. There is no six-month plan. It's day by day. Fight the flesh today, whatever part of the flesh it's at you. And be able to say, I put my head on the pillow, having won today's battle. And tomorrow's a whole new set of tricks, set of traps the devil's going to set up to try to bring you down. And of course, we don't need the devil to help us sin, do we? Our flesh is pretty powerful on its own. And we were by nature children of wrath. Now, some people are confused here because by nature we are children of God. And so that God created every one of us. Every one of us, it says, God knitted us in our mother's womb. And so we have that sense. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made by God. However, being born into this world spiritually dead, we are also living after the life of sin and of flesh. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you family of snakes, you brood of vipers. He also says, you are children of the devil. So we clearly understand because of our, if we, as we, our body is surrendered to that old sinful man puppeted by Satan, and we are living in the flesh and not receiving the love of the truth of Christ crucified, buried, and rose again the third day, 
then we are all the time nature we are deserving of God's wrath in John 3 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved he who believes in him is not condemned he who does not believe in him he's condemned already because you're already children of wrath because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God this is the condemnation that the light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And John 3:36, he who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. God couldn't make it any simpler, could he? He did all the work in the son. He gave his only begotten son. What do you have to do? Just believe in Jesus. Like the thief on the cross who had been mocking Jesus. His heart was dark. He had been sinning his whole life. And he was a part of the spirit of that age. He was part of the course of that world as he was carrying his own horizontal part of the cross, the Patabolum, as they were parading down the Via Della Rosa, the, the streets uh, parading him towards Golgotha. These two thieves were also next to them. And they were also joining the crowd, mocking Jesus, hating Jesus. They're hung on the cross. They're still mocking Jesus. Both of these thieves are in agreement with those who are crucifying them and all the crowd mocking Jesus. You've saved others, saved yourself. You've healed others, heal yourself. If you're really the son of God, take yourself off the cross if you have power. And then one of the thieves realized this guy is like no other human being ever. Jesus with nails to his hands and his feet a crown of thorns upon his head said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this thief realized this guy would receive me if I asked him to. Jesus, Lord, when? Future tense. He knew he'd raised from the dead. You come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you get that? It's not of our works. It's a gift of God. How simple is that? People are going to go to hell as children of wrath for simply not saying Jesus is Lord. God sent his only begotten son into human flesh to on the cross take all my sin, the sin of the whole world, from the first sin of Adam to the last sin ever committed, all bore upon Jesus, that whoever would believe upon him, that's it. No prayers to be prayed, no deeds to be done, Simply believe upon him. As many as received Jesus, to them they gave the right to become children of God, but they would not believe the love of the truth. Now understand, God is not like some self-righteous Pharisee. Stoner, stoner, oh, she's such a horrible sinner. No, God is love. And since God is love, there has to be justice as well as mercy. There has to be condemnation of sins as well as forgiveness of sins. They both have to exist. Let me give you an analogy. There's a guy who kidnapped a number of girls, raped them, tortured them, murdered them. He finally got caught. And now a few years have gone by since he's been in jail and he's finally coming to court. 
And there's the families of all of those victims. And the guy sitting there and the prosecuting attorney gets up and declares all the horrible things he's done and the evidence that's been they have and he's going to show in the trial. And then the defense attorney gets up for this horrible, evil, murderous man. And he starts to talk and the judge says, stop. You need to know there's one thing about me and only one thing about me. I'm a judge of love. Love, 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 love. Forgiveness, mercy, love, kindness. There's nothing else to know about me. Sir, I love you. I can't condemn you. I can't judge you. You're free to go. Out of love and mercy and kindness, you're free to go. Now I ask you, is that judge loving? <laughs> is he loving the family of those victims? Is he loving the victims that have been horribly brutalized and raped and tortured? No, you, you understand now that a God who's perfect in love also has to be perfect in judgment. If you do not have justice, you do not have love. You make one disappear, the other goes away. And so, out of love, the judge will condemn that man to the best you can condemn somebody on earth, which is really never sufficient. What could you do to that man to really bring true justice upon him? You're going to come short. Lock him in a jail. You come short. You put him to death. You come short. You really, man cannot bring about justice, but an eternal God who can bring about an eternal damnation in hell, in a lake of fire, where they're sweeping and gnashing of teeth, he can and will bring about true justice out of love. And so understand, if we do not receive this simple, loving way that's been paved by God to be forgiven, Jesus took the penalty of our sin upon himself. So a loving father can say, I must condemn your sin, but it's already been paid for in my son who is God in human flesh. He's in human flesh. He can be your substitute. He's God. All that he does is eternal. I receive his punishment in your place. And that suffices the justice and the wrath of God. So these people are children of wrath just as others he's just saying right now take them take a minute guys take a minute do you do you realize that your neighbor right now may have spent his whole night in sorrow of his heart over his past life when sorrow in the middle of the night waking up with great regret over his adultery, over his fornication, over his stealing, over his horrible, harsh words. Maybe there's been severed relationships because of that flesh of his, a divorce, alienation from kids or from parents or siblings. And they can't go back to sleep and they're in such torment, they're crying out, God, if you don't stop this pain, I'm going to stop it myself. That internal scars upon the soul is greater than any pain 
that can happen in the flesh. Isn't that true? And there you are living right next door. And your words to say, what can I pray for you about? Or can I tell you the great joy of coming to Christ and having my sins forgiven? Can I share that with you? What God has done for me? Yes, in past years, they might have slammed the door on you and told them to keep your blankety-blank-blank religion to yourself. That's, that's normal for us. Because unless the Holy Spirit has been convicted in a sin of righteousness of judgment, currently, their eyes are blind, their heart is hard. But yet, Jesus said, the fields are white into harvest. There may be those that reject you, but there's going to be many, many, many that will receive that love of the truth, will receive saying, explain to me how I can have eternal life. And when you tell them, just believe upon Christ, read a Bible, pray it, follow him. Well, do I need to start? No, that's it. That's the finished work of Christ. Follow him. Obey him and you'll have joy in, even in this life. We need to stop and remember what was it like when we were that person? Sometimes we've been Christians for decades and we can't remember what it was like to be in that darkness. Back when I was in college, I remember coming across this very point. And I prayed. I said, Lord, help me to remember how miserable and how dark and what it was like as a non-Christian. I can't remember. I was only 21 I think at the time and then the next day I remember going to read the Bible and I couldn't get it it was like it, it didn't make sense to me normally I read the Bible and my heart gets touched and it burns within me at the joy of this truth of God and I would go to pray and it just felt like my praise were bouncing off the ceiling and I couldn't connect with God and this went on for several days, and I had totally forgot about that prayer. And I remember being in the prayer chapel going, God, I can't understand the Bible. It's not burning my heart as it normally does to say, Lord, I want to live for you. I don't have that. God, help me. I, I can't pray. I can't read the Bible. I can't connect with And then the Lord said, remember what you ask. The sin, oh, I was still struggling with the sin, even as a believer. But that connection, I realized, once it happens, it's hard to remember having a life where it wasn't like that. And so again here, we need to remember how lost, lost people are. How miserable it is not to have that comfort of coming and pouring our griefs, our sins, our struggles upon the Lord. Being able to read the Bible and Him speaking into our hearts the Scripture. And so Christ is in all of us pleading in second corinthians 5 18 now all things are of god and has reconciled us to himself through jesus christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation that is second corinthians 5 19 that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them Woo, is that huge and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, not some president or prime minister or some king, but the king of kings, 
We're his ambassador. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So think of the town you live in. You are ambassador to that town. Think of the street you live on. You're an ambassador to that street. Think of the job you work at or used to work at before the COVID. <laughs> you are an ambassador to that workplace, a light there. And people are suffering, hurting, miserable. But I love verse four, but God, Woo. who is rich in mercy, who because of his great love, which he has loved us, do you get it? But God, because of God, but God, rich in mercy, because of God's great riches of love. But God, rich in mercy, because God, in the greatness of his love for us. Clark has a wonderful quote on this. As they were corrupt in their nature, sinful in their practice, they could possess no merit, nor have any claim upon God. It's required much mercy to remove much misery, much pardon to forgive such transgressions. Isn't it true? Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross with only three of our sins, was it? Jesus was hanging on that cross with an amount of sins that we can't even know the number of them by ourselves, do we? So I just want to take a moment here once again and, and, and look at this. The focus is on God and his rich and great mercy and love. The focus is upon his great mercy and love for us. It's not that of a doctor taking away the cancer or a psychologist trying to ease the guilt of a patient. It's not a lawyer filing paperwork for some legal document. Our Savior is our shepherd. He is our friend. He is our husband. He is the one who lovingly cares for us with rich mercy and great love. I do need to stop here and clarify something because once again, the Calvinist warps this scripture as well by making the focus upon us. You see, they teach there's a select amount of us that God selected before time began and upon you handful of select people because you are such a rich trophy, because you are such a rich treasure. God had to give you mercy and forgiveness. Guys, no. The focus here, here is not upon us. As you read this verse, the focus is upon God. And that rich mercy, that great love is for everyone who will believe, upon all who will receive. And the moment you believe upon the Lord, you become the rich treasure 
of Christ. But yet they, in their pride, say it's because we were such a special and select group, not like that other group that aren't chosen. Forget them. It's all about us. No. It's all about everybody in the world. God loves everybody in the world. God paid for the sins, not just of a select group as Calvinists teach, but Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. And again, I point this out because in the Calvary Chapel movement, there have been many hindered by that Calvinistic teaching and they have focused upon themselves rather than upon the Lord. They have focused upon their intellect and academics to debate their position rather than upon a love relationship, just thanking God for his great mercy and love towards us. David Guzik says this, Every reason for God's mercy and love is found in him. We give him no reason to love us, yet in the greatness of his love, he loves us with that great love anyway. Also, Dave Guzik quote, Therefore, we must stop trying to make ourselves lovable to God and simply receive his great love, which recognizing that we are unworthy of it. This is the grace secret of the Christian life. Yes, I'm not worth it, but God's made me worthy. I am so sinful. If anybody in their right mind should throw me away and have nothing to do with me. But yet Christ takes me to himself as his own special friend, his bride, his sheep. Well, verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So Christ did not wait for us to be lovable. I had a friend back in high school I was sharing the Lord with, and, and I said, would you like to receive Christ now? And he said, you know, just give me a few days. And after a few days, he came back and he said, okay, I have not cussed for three days. I didn't look at the porn magazines under my bed for three days. I have obeyed my mom the best I could for three days. Do you, do you think I could receive Christ now? In his mind, he, he had to be somewhat lovable, somewhat clean before God would clean him. And to be able to explain to him, you don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, faith sort of requires that you don't do that. Faith says when I was at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, that's when Christ loved me. Not because I was level or special or I was heading in his direction anyway. <laughs> he met me halfway. No. Christ died for us. Christ loved us, showed mercy upon us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have to agree on that fact. In 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10 in particular, it says, If we say that we know sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10 now of 1 John 1. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So those who teach, I'm basically a good person, everybody's basically a good person. Then why would Jesus have to be tortured and died on a cross? It was no small torture. It was no small cross. It was not like, like Jesus, 
you know, somebody pulled a trigger and shot him in the head and it was over. You know, Christ suffered and died because our sins were great. There was a great, horrible sacrifice that his, that he would take the wrath of God upon him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That broken fellowship for eternity we should have experienced. Christ, the Son, experienced it with this Father. But in verse 9 of 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess, that word means to agree with. If we are in agreement that we have sins, we confess we have sins, we agree with God that we're sinners. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just about the sins you know about, but all the sins you don't know about. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says to these Pharisees who are mocking him for eating with sinners, I have not come for the quote-unquote righteous, but sinners, to bring them to repentance. In John 5.24, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has, has passed from death unto life. There we go. We were once dead, but now we've been made alive. By grace, we've been saved. How did that happen? Whoever hears this word right now and believes upon Jesus right now, in the very moment you believed it in your heart, you pass from death to life. I can tell you it's been more than one time I've been next to the side of somebody in a coma. And their family is saying, I, I don't know where they're going to spend eternity. I'm in terror of that. And often the person is in the coma because they were drunk. And they injured themselves in a car wreck or some other way. Some of them had sinned horribly. I've had kids come to me and say, my dad was a blankety blank, drunk this, drunk that, and I hate his guts. And, and I do not want you getting up there making it sound like he was this lovely guy and he's in heaven now. That blankety blanks in hell and he deserves every second there. I've had kids say those kind of things. So watch your step up there, preacher. Don't give us a bunch of nonsense. But in many occasions, I've been able to tell them, you know what? When your dad was in that coma, I came and I shared the gospel and I said, I think you can hear me. I don't know. But I'm going to share the gospel, believing that God will give you an ability in your brain, even in this COVID, to listen to me. And I share the gospel. And I say, would you like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? Squeeze my hand. And I'll tell you what, maybe ever so slightly, they made a movement they hadn't made since they were in that coma. And the family even sees it. And I'm able to get up at that funeral and say to them, it's by grace we're saved. Not of ourselves. it's a gift of God. And let me tell you what happened at his bedside and yes, he was a blankety-blank that deserves hell. I'm a blankety-blank and also deserves hell. And you're a blankety-blank and deserves hell. We're all children of wrath. But God, who was rich in mercy, great in love, sent his only begotten son to die in our place. So this part of the, in Romans 6, 8, it says this, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Struggling as we do, 
in this flesh, we are born again. We are a new creation in Christ, even though it doesn't look like it when I look in the mirror. But yet we are because God has made it so as a gift, not of our works, lack of works or because of our works, because of bad works or because of good works. We're saved by grace alone. And we're going to be talking about that in detail next week. It's all God's work and his work alone and not anything we've ever said or done. Well, in verse 6, And he raised us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So here he's telling you, I'm God. There's no limitations in seeing time. God can look in the past. God can see in the present. God can see in the future at the same time. The future is not less clear to him as the past or the present. And we can, we can imagine such a being, although we can't imagine the, how many ways he would be benefited. We can say, play the lottery. We know the numbers now. That's about as far as we can go. But God is saying, I need you to know this by only believing. But, but you don't know how I'm going to live the next 10 years. What's it say in Romans 8? Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present. Say it with me. Nor things to come will separate me from the love of God. It can't happen. It doesn't matter what the future may bring. He has already said, you who believed, I want you to know that I'm already seeing you right next to Jesus on the throne, next to him in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? We're his kids. We're up there on our, our God's lap and holding him and hugging him and kissing him and making fish face with his lips and pulling on his beard. And when uh, my good friend Greg O'Pean was married, my youngest son Tracy at the time was getting close to three. Why Chuck did his wedding the whole time he was playing Ring Around the Rosie on Chuck's legs, going in and outside Chuck's legs the whole time Chuck was trying to marry my, my good friend Greg. And Chuck loved it. It was the highlight to him. In the same way, it says in Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Amazing. We're not just in heaven. We're with Christ, as Christ. Inheritance with Christ. That just blows my mind. I mean, I could see the Lord saying, come in, just don't let anybody know you're here, Brian. Just sort of sit in the back and be quiet. That, that makes sense to me. I mean, if I get to heaven at all, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm saying if you're thinking that it has something to do with my efforts or my goodness... I might squeeze into heaven. You hear people saying that. You're going to go to heaven? I hope so. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be a good person. I think I am a good person. Yeah, I, yeah. There's a heaven. There's life after death. Yeah, God, God will say I'm okay. Yeah, I'm sure of it. No, next time the Girl Scout comes around, he'll buy $300 worth of Girl Scout cookies to ease his conscience. He's made us. He made us. He made us to sit together with him in heavenly places. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began that good work, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now we know what we're talking about. 
till we're sitting with him on the throne. In Hebrews 2, 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, and what else? The finisher of our faith. Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end, the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And there we are in heavenly places. Our citizenship is in heaven. We need to vote. And if you're a political person and you want to be involved in politics, I think that's great. But it's never our hope. No new taxes. We got new taxes. Bush Jr. is in there, but he's so up to his neck and the swamp. He doesn't make a move that all the elites didn't want him to make. And it was eight years of almost uselessness under a Republican with the with the Congress and the Senate. Are you old enough to remember that? Woo, we got the Congress and the Senate. We got a Republican president. A big nothing burger. Clinton got elected. I was depressed. I tell you, I did not have sex with that girl. Well, you got to define is for me. Ridiculousness. That's politics. At best, it'll move human things in a direction a little bit. And it's not something you want to sit around and make your hope or your depression. My hope is this. If it doesn't happen, then I'm falling off the cliff. Guys, Jesus is our president, our king, our Lord. Our hope is in him. It's not this earth. It's going to melt away with a fervent heat. Our citizenship is in heaven. Clark said this, And now we sit in heavenly places. We have a right to the kingdom of God. Anticipate this glory and indescribable happy in the possession of this salvation in our fellowship with Christ Jesus. Why is God sharing this with us? Because he wants us to be overjoyed right now. But my flesh, my flesh, I'm so lustful, I'm so greedy, I'm so angry. This flesh is going bye-bye, guys. It's going to return to dust from which it came. We're going to have a brand new body. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to be just like Jesus is. And everybody who contemplates that will be pure just as he is pure. Our spirit will be only around righteous, holy people. The only angels we'll be around will be godly, radical, loving, powerful angels like Michael and Gabriel, Satan, and those princes of the power of the air will be put down and darkness separated us from us for eternity. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken in your likeness. If you're in, the, you're in the hospital dying, ask somebody to print that verse up and put it right over your head. <laughs> I'm quickly going to see Jesus. I'm on this deathbed, getting shallower and shallower, and Jesus is there rubbing my face. Wake up, Brian. Wake up. And I open my eyes. And there's Jesus. There's the angels. There's heaven. There's my son, Tracy, that passed away a few years ago. My sister who died this year, my sister-in-law who died this year, my aunt who died this year. 
sorrows but for a night, joy is coming. And we're not just going to squeeze into heaven. There is going to be a ticker tape parade and we're going to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. In the final verse, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ. This blows my mind. Grace is such a deep subject. Eternity. It's an eternal subject. There's no amount of books that can explain to us how grace, how great God's grace is. But every day in heaven will awaken to a new revelation of God's grace. What is the focal point of his grace? Kindness. Wow. Who would have saw that coming? You know what? The word love is so messed up in our culture. Hollywood and all of its movies, you know, they get the orchestra going. Oh, the beautiful, perfect sunset, you know. And then the couple, oh, they re-embrace after going through a turbulent period. They come together and they're, they're kissing, making out. And then, boom, the end. We're like... Oh, I want love. I want love. Uh, I don't love you anymore. Uh, you know, uh, I don't love you either. Uh. Of course, when they were filming that, there were cars racing by. They had to do the vocals later. You could smell the sewer system. A bird just pooped on their back a minute ago. None of this you can see in the Hollywood movie. But that's love. That is not love. I, it, just forget the word love. Kindness. Mercy, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. Those are the things. And they spell out to us just God, how kind God was repeatedly, continuously to us. Amen? Thank you for your patience. Sorry to, to go long here. But uh, next week, verse 8 and 9, two of the most powerful verses in the Bible. We're going to have a great time there. You guys know those verses, right? By grace, we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A whole sermon on our favorite topic. And then the next week, verse 10, where we are a poema, a work of art in Christ, that God's been made, predestined good works ahead of time that we should walk in them. It's going to be an awesome time the next couple of weeks. Let's have the band come up and let's all stand and we'll close with the song. I would encourage you, if you haven't been into a Christian foundation, just growing, maybe just re-establishing a foundation. We have in the back, books back there called Christian Foundation Course. Take them, work through them. If you want somebody in the church to go along with you, let us know because we are starting groups, one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-five, whatever it takes to just strengthen and just talk about the scripture and encourage each other in the Lord. God bless you.